This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 21st, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're going to look at a couple of IRS news releases. Because to be totally honest, not really much happened this week. It's been, it's been kind of slow because I think of the election, other things going on. We just haven't had as many court cases that have been of any significant interest. And we've had a few other things, and I think regulations have slowed down. And we just don't have the crazy, uh, shall we say, rapid change we had back during the pandemic. If you remember that, during the pandemic years, uh, we had rapid change coming constantly and the law side. Well, we haven't seen a really big act come down since the American Rescue Plan Act early in 21. And also, since a lot of those acts were very short term, we also haven't seen a whole lot of things involved in passing a law that required a bunch of regulations that would matter more than for one or two years. And so those tended to be handled by guidance. So because of that, it's been kind of slim pickings the latter part of this year. We do expect that with the Inflation Reduction Act and the significant changes that were made in credits, we're going to start getting now some real regulations coming and being worked on stuff. But right now, we're in a lull period and probably will stay there for a little while. So this week, we'll look at two IRS news releases as we're heading here toward the end of the year. The first one focuses on talking to taxpayers about making use of qualified charitable distributions from individual retirement accounts. And that's really kind of a tax planning option, something that you should at least remember. IRS is bringing it up at this point to remind taxpayers of it. But it is a useful option, especially for taxpayers that have required minimum distributions or over age 70 and a half and are taken out of their own IRA account. Not an inherited one, inheritance doesn't work, but taken out of their own IRA account. Something definitely to consider. And we'll also talk about the fact that the, we're coming up on the seventh annual National Tax Security Awareness Week beginning on November the 28th. And the IRS is talking about some of the issues they want people to get ready for in, tax, in the upcoming tax season. That includes both taxpayers and tax professionals. So we'll talk about what the IRS is looking at bringing up in that area. Let's go ahead then and talk about the first news release, which is titled Reminders to IRS, IRA Owners Over Age 70 and a Half. Uh, qualified charitable distributions are great options for making tax-free gifts to charity. This was released on November the 17th. And this is meant to talk to you about transfers that are available to IRA holders that are over age 70 and a half. And it is age 70 and a half, not age 72. I've actually had that question raised a couple of times recently by people in courses about whether that would be, quote, fixed in a later tax bill. In reality, I don't think that was an error in the SECURE Act. The age has never been linked directly. While both were 70 and a half in the past, the required minimum distribution age and the age for IRA distributions. Interestingly enough, when Congress enacted the IRA distribution rule with $100,000 transfers beginning in the year the taxpayer turned age 70 and a half, or beginning after they turned age 70 and a half, when IRS, when that went into the law, Congress didn't cross-reference, and it would have been an obvious way to cross-reference a required beginning date. But they didn't do that. They rather hard-coded 70 and a half in here. And I would also suspect, because the SECURE Act took quite a few years to develop, that it was something they intentionally left at 70 and a half. Certainly nobody suggested that I know of yet that, oh, we got to go back and change that. And certainly in the retirement bills that are being proposed to go through this Congress, we're not seeing that being changed. 
So the bottom line is the IRS wants to remind people about how these programs work. And so what they want to talk about here first is they talk about in, in this deal, they talk a little bit about how you make the contribution. So this you will see is the uh, basically notice from the IRS. This was actually those security summit. I'll get the right one up here. This one that you'll see if you're watching the video of this talks you how to go ahead and set up your qualified charitable distribution. Right now, as I noted, the very top part of it reminds you that, yes, if you're age 72 and you have required minimum distributions coming out of your IRA account, this counts toward that. So it is a way of taking advantage of getting your RMD done. The key advantage of these, very simple. You're able to transfer up to $100,000 to a charity. It is not considered taxable to the taxpayer, so it doesn't end up in your adjusted gross income. That's good news because, again, we have things that are triggered by AGI levels. That includes things like Medicare payments that are due. You know, basically, your Medicare premiums are tied to your adjusted gross income. So not having $100,000 going to adjust gross income could actually reduce somebody's requirement to how much they have to pay for their Medicare. That's not a bad thing. And also, there's just a whole bunch of other tax areas where higher AGI can hurt you for things like the 1411 tax on the investment income. Uh, we talk about you know things like the medical deduction because that's 7.5% of AGI. So $100,000 would lose you potentially $7,500 of medical deductions that you'd otherwise get, you know, and then various other routines that get involved in just crazy AGI limitation stuff that Congress loves to do. So there's that advantage. Now, Al, they said, any IRA owner that wants to make this distribution should contact the trustee soon because, again, the trustee has to complete the transaction before the end of the year. We have to make sure this transaction takes place. So as the IRS suggests, if a taxpayer wants to do this, they want to start setting up coordination now. As noted, normally a distribution from retirement plan would be taxable when received. But with a qualified charitable distribution, they're tax-free as long as they're paid directly from the IRA to an eligible charitable organization. Now that's important. Your client can't just take a regular IRA distribution, put that in their bank account, and then turn around and write checks to charity and claim it's a qualified charitable distribution. That's not quite how it does, right? So you need to have it basically either transferred electronically to the charity or have a check payable to the charity, right? You cannot have a payment made to the IRA owner and you can't have a check made payable to the IRA owner via qualified charitable distribution, even if you endorse that check over to a charity. Each year, those who are age 70 and a half or over can exclude from gross income up to $100,000. And if you're married and they're both over age 70 and a half and both have IRAs, then each spouse can include to exclude $100,000. So then we can be looking at $200,000 worth of excluded income. Again, useful because while if you don't go this route, you would have a $200,000 of additional AGI and then a $200,000 itemized deduction. You know, you got all the standard problems, including potentially if you don't have lots of interest because you paid off your home mortgage, your know, taxes are limited to 10 grand. You can actually lose part of the $100,000 deduction anyway because you have to build your way up to the standard deduction. So lots of reasons why these are, you know, very useful structures. I've talked to a lot of clients who've made use of this, and it can be clients even who aren't going to do $100,000, but if they're unable to itemize, right, and a lot of clients, you know, when they're, you know, one of the things they planned for their retirement was not to have a mortgage payment, 
right, to get that paid down, paid off. And we're sitting with a $10,000 cap on state and local taxes. So I don't care how much real estate taxes are, we can't go above 10 grand. And their standard deduction, because they're over age 65, is going to be well above 10 grand. We're going to chew up a lot of charitable contributions, just trying to get to being able to itemize. And so, you know, if there's somebody that makes 10 grand of contributions, they'd never be able to itemize. But if I can transfer that 10 grand out of an IRA, then effectively I am, you know, getting the deduction because it can reduce the required minimum distributions. If all they're taking is their RMDs, yeah, it works great for that purpose. So, you know, we end up running that and we see how it works. Now, the other question is, how do we report this? Well, as they tell you here in the, in the notice or in the court, in the release, you have to report it on a 2022 income tax return. And you'll get a form 1099-R. Now, it will show there's no special code for a QCD. So it is going to show that as total distribution and taxable. I've had a few clients freak out when they see that because, wait, I, I transferred $75,000 to this charity. It was a qualified charitable distribution. Why does Charles Schwab show that I have $75,000 of taxable income? The catch is that's how it's meant to be shown. As I recall, in the early years of this, the IRS did have them zero that out. But then the charities, you know, basically the IRA custodians started saying, we don't really know this qualifies. I'll talk about why in a couple seconds. But, you know, we don't, we're, we don't want to be subjected to having to do diligence to figure out this is a qualified charity or did they meet all the requirements? Was there some agreement, etc.? That's really a burden on the taxpayer. So what we now have them do is you put it there. Uh, normally, the full amount of distribution, you would enter a zero on line 4B. Um, if the only a part is that, then you do the taxable. Either way, you enter QCD next to line 4B. And there'll be details in the instructions to Form 1040 for 2022. Now, of course, that inner QCD next line 4B is, well, that's for a paper return. That's what you do. And certainly for the returns we print out, that tends to be what shows. But in reality, our tax software is going to be taking care of this, most often by doing something, you know, taking care of internal coding so the IRS gets that flag that this was a qualified charitable distribution. So that's important to understand. Also important to understand is that you still need a con contemporary written acknowledgement. The charitable documentation rules are not overridden by making a QCD. Therefore, as the IRS notes in the press release, they're not deductible as charitable contributions, but you still have to have the quality, basically the contemporaneous written acknowledgement. That acknowledgement must state the date, the amount of the contribution, and whether you received anything of value in return. Generally, if it's going to a religious institution, it'll have the statement that you received nothing of value except for an intangible religious benefit. If you did receive something of value, the charity has to tell us how much that value was. And in this particular case, that much is going to be taxable because if you paid the charity, you know, $20,000 and you got something worth $1,000 in exchange, well, that thousand will be taxable. The 19000 will be considered the contribution. So you want to make sure you get that. If you don't get this acknowledgement, the entire IRA distribution becomes taxable with no deduction on Schedule A. And as we've discussed in this past year, the IRS has had three different cases where they have won easily by showing that a taxpayer did not meet the contemporaneous written acknowledgement standard. 
and as the Fifth Circuit ruled this year, uh, that is a very, very strict requirement because Congress wrote the law according to the Fifth Circuit, and generally the other courts, other circuits agree with this view. Congress wrote the law. The courts are not allowed to step in and say, well, I know it's the, it requires this, but that's kind of being strict and crazy. I know you made the contribution, so we're just going to let you have it. Can't get that on these charitable contributions, so be aware of that. So we still do need that contemporaneous written acknowledgement. Now, the other release we had this week uh, comes from the IRS. It says, Security Summit focuses special week on identity theft to protect taxpayers, tax professionals, as holidays and tax season approaches. This is IRS News Release 2022-202, and it was issued on November 18th. Now, this announcement came out primarily to announce that we're going to be entering into the 7th Annual National Tax Security Awareness Week. And that'll run from beginning on November 28th and running to December 2nd. No, we're not going to run it during the Thanksgiving week. Yeah, might, might, might get overlooked somewhat there. Right, so all, all of these issues get taken care of during that time period. Now, one of the things we're going to have as part of this that you might want to you know, consider looking at and you might want to consider viewing or have clients view is there will be a webinar. On November 29th, there will be a webinar, Deeper Dive into Emerging Cyber Crimes and Crypto Tax Compliance. It could be useful for your viewing. So I'm just going to say that it will be part of that. So that'll come up on Tuesday, the 29th. So you may want to consider checking to see if you have the time available. And if you do, you might want to you know, tune in for that. It'll be an IRS hosted event. And therefore, it means there's not going to be a charge for it. You just have to basically get to the IRS hosted event. Okay, let's start talking about what's going to be here in the IRS you know, a, as we talk about what the IRS is doing. And so in this, in this news release, you know, the IRS comes down and points out that this is the annual security summit, right? They have the standard little thing mentioning. They talk about all the evolving scrams and all of those things and talk about these risks, right? And come up with some of the things they would like you to do. Now, some of the highlights coming up. Cyber Monday tells me probably this is what I'm going to talk about on Monday. And this is about protecting personal and financial information online. And they're going to tell people, they remind people in that day, they'll put out some more description and notice here, of some basic steps when shopping online. To use security software for computers and mobile phones and keep it updated. To make sure antivirus software for computers has a feature to stop malware that there is a firewall enabled that can prevent intrusions. Most, you know, basically today, Windows and Mac OS, and the Mac OS uh, both have firewalls built in. You want to make sure they've not been disabled. That's probably going to be the more likely problem if they do. Number three, very important, use strong and unique passwords for all accounts. The problem with using the same password over and over again, I understand it's impossible to memorize passwords for every single site you go to. No question. What that means is you've got to use a password manager. Because if you reuse passwords, here's the problem. If passwords are reused, and that, that's the thing the IRS is concerned about here, people reusing passwords. When you reuse a password, you really don't know for all of the people you have to have passwords with whether they are storing passwords actually securely or not. Now, the way a password should be basically saved by the vendor 
you know, when you set up an account with somebody is instead of just saving the plain text, you might think, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put out on a disk, you know, the username and then the password they should give and just have it there in plain text. Well, that seems like, oh yeah, obvious way to do it. That's a very bad way to do it. Because if that file can be accessed, if, if an intruder gets in, gets access to the files on the server and can download that files, and we have seen this happen with multiple different uh, companies that have hosted online services. Then the other party, because quite often the username's your email address, right? And so that means that'll probably work on a whole bunch of other sites. And if you've been reusing passwords, and I can see your password because we got into, you know, some site you logged into for your, you know, 20th high school reunion. And they sent up a website and some sort of discussion board. And, of course, nobody cared about security there because, hey, it's, it's a discussion board for a high school in the middle of Nebraska. Why would anybody care about, you know, the password issues there to get in? We just have that, you know, theoretically keep the conversation among ourselves. Well, if they get access to that, then they start trying it on major sites. And there's software out there that would actually try it on a whole bunch of major sites. And at that point, it would get in. For that reason, seriously consider password managers. There's a number of them out there. Things like LastPass, 1Password, um, RoboForm. Various password managers are out there in the world. Now, you want to make sure you're relatively comfortable with the security of your manager because for various obvious reasons. Uh, that's going to be one point of failure. If they can get that from you, then they've got all the passwords. But if it's properly secured, um, you're probably okay. We had to be a little more concerned today because password managers, it was one thing when everybody just only accessed stuff on their one computer from the office. But these days, we tend to be accessing data uh, not just on the computer in the office. We may be working from home, so the home computer accesses it. We may need to access stuff on the phones or a tablet or on the road. So we, our password managers tend to store the passwords some way in the cloud so that all of those devices will have access to the current passwords. Want to be very sure the security there works and keep up with security updates and patches on those password managers. Because you don't want to find out you lost that. They also strongly suggest use multi-factor authentication. That's where, in addition to the password, in addition to the username password, when you go to log into a site, you're going to be required to produce something else. Now, that something else could be a physical hardware key. Uh, I, I have them from YubiKey that I use for quite a few sites, uh, where I just have to put this physical key I carry with me into the USB slot on my computer, or I can't get into the site. It may also be a code. Um, it might be a code from a application on your phone. Uh, you know, various applications. I use one called Authy that's able to do it. You have the Google Authenticator. Uh, you have a bunch of others. Microsoft's Authenticator can also do this. In fact, even some of the tax software vendors, I know that Thomson Reuters, uh, you know, they're using that same sort of authentication standard. If you want to go down that, even though their they're standard program will automatically get beat by their system just so that's to make it easier, but you can just use a straight up authenticator. The least effective and way we least like to use it, the strongest method is definitely the physical key. 
The next strongest method is the phone with the generator on it, number generator on it. The least secure method is if they send you a, a text message over your phone, SMS code. The reason why that's insecure is because of the thing known as SIM jacking. That's where I trick your vendor that gives you your phone service, whatever the carrier may be. I somehow trick somebody working for them into believing I'm you and somehow I've lost my phone. You know, I can't get it. I need to have a new SIM card put in. And so they activate a SIM card that now takes over your number. And that means when the SMS text comes, it's going to go to their phone, not to yours, the one they're carrying. And this has been used quite a few times. Now, SIM jacking became really, really popular as ways to steal, to, to steal basically cryptocurrency back when it apparently was worth something uh, because a lot of those systems were using the SMS methods to verify. And so if you could get the phone, you were great. You got control. So be sure to do that. Multi-factor authentication is better because even if the password gets leaked, they still need something else. And if that something else is, like in my case, for a lot of places, they need to have a physical key they can insert in the side of their computer that is generating a specific type of code that only that key generates. So if they don't have the key I've got in my pocket right now, they can't get in. That's the most secure. The uh, authenticator apps with the phones, they use a standard starting uh, basically a seed number and then they recompute based on the time of day and every seed is a little different. And of course, only if you know the seed number, which by the way, your phone knows that and the server knows that number. But if the third party doesn't know that number, they can't generate the number. So that's by far the second best method. Third best method, as I said, SMS. If you can't, if there's no other option but SMS, use SMS rather than leave it wide open, but understand the risk there. And especially understand that if sometime your phone stops working, for whatever reason, you can't get service, you're not getting text, you can't get data, you know, over, the, over that unless you log into Wi-Fi, yeah, you might want to quickly call the phone company to figure out what just happened and was a brand new SIM issued. Because if so, then somebody could have your password, username, and be logging into your account. Also, they suggest shop on only secure website. Now, they tell you to look for HTTPS and the web addresses. The problem is these days, for the most part, we don't see the HTTPS address. I doubt you can see it on the screen because the lettering gets really small. But the address bar in Chrome that I've got up here, it doesn't say anything for this page except irs.gov. But there is a padlock to the left of irs.gov. Definitely, you should be looking for that address. Uh, they do say avoid shopping on unsecured public Wi-Fi in places like coffee shops, malls, or restaurants. That advice is not bad advice, but because now the vast majority of websites are using secure transfers, it's less of a problem than it used to be, right? The big danger of going in and using like, you know, the an open Wi-Fi in your local coffee shop is that because it's unencrypted by default, Normally, you don't have to put in a special code. You know, you don't have to put in a password to log on to the network that's decrypting and decrypting the stuff. Uh, what you're going to see is everybody on the network could see what you're transmitting. That's a problem if it's not secured. But if you are using the actual, you know, padlock icon version, uh, generally it doesn't matter. All they can see is stuff that's not going to be something they can decrypt 
because the machine at the other end, you know, the website you're talking to is the only one that can decrypt that information. Still though, probably it's good to try to avoid those unsecured networks just in case for whatever reason you don't notice and you accidentally get on a website that is not encrypted. Then you may want to be able to make that go. Okay, other topics are gonna have in here. They will be talking about tax professionals reviewing the security protocols. In this case, they're going to talk about, as they say, tax professionals are targeted by uh, identity thieves. The reason for that is simple. On your server, you have the gold mine in terms of data that could be insanely useful for somebody who is trying to steal client information, trying to steal information. You know, especially depending upon, you know, if you have a high net net worth client base, that's really valuable data out there. So in that session, we talk about that beginning probably on Tuesday. We're going to talk about basic security measures to deploy. Again, use multi-factor authentication for tax software accounts. I have heard so many people whine about, yeah, every, I, you know, I, I start working on this and I walk away from my computer for two minutes to get coffee or something. When I come back, I had to give a brand new code again and log back in. And that's horrible. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. You know, and trying to figure out ways to disable that. Do not disable that. I don't care if you figured out a way to do it. Don't do it. The reason why those protocols are there is because generally, if we're going to break into an account, accounting firm's, you know, system, I want to get, I want to get the information from your server. Now, I could go around and just, you know, go, go the old way you think about the hacker who's going to somehow break in and get around your firewall, you know, figure out a hole in your firewall and get in and be able to do stuff and somehow get the decrypt and decrypt the stuff. You've watched too many cop shows on TV where they magically can decrypt anything. You know, you get it, you get to the computer geek. There's always now a computer geek that, that, that is on the, on the team and they obviously can decrypt everything. That, that's not real world. Uh, the real world is the, oh, that, that stuff's tough to beat. But what's easy to do is to trick a user to install something on the machine to allow remote access. Now, it won't say I'm going to do remote access. She's going to install something. And then, you know, be able to come into the system at night, uh, having captured their password, their username and password, and be able to just kind of, you know, log in the system and then nicely file a bunch of tax returns by creating returns for your clients and just sending them off and changing, you know, where the bank account, where the deposit would go, those sorts of things. That's the simplest to do. This two-factor authentication is meant to stop that from happening. Because again, even if they trick somebody, if that person needs a hardware key to be able to run the tax software, or they need to provide the number from the authenticator program to be able to access, uh, that's going to make that that's going to be something that that party won't have. So be aware of that. Uh, if you're working remotely, be sure to use a VPN or some secured tunnel to be able to get in to the system back at the office. You know, you don't want to be using, generally be very leery of using, you know, the built-in system in Windows. Um, you know, Windows Remote Desktop has, first thing is, has a very well-known address. It tends to use, you know, just a simple protocol there have been problems with it. I mean, Windows Remote Desktop is iffy. You, you want something other than just that to cover you. Preferably, we'd like to have a VPN back to the main network and be able to use that to get through. 
Remember, you are required to have a written data security plan by federal law. If you've renewed, if you renewed your P10 yet, you've been asked about that. You know, so either you've got one or you lied. You got two options there. So be, be sure aware of it. Uh, you should know about phishing and phone scams. By the way, when we discuss the AICPA's proposed changes to the SSTS, they point out, yeah, you can't tell me your IT department takes care of this. They don't. Phishing and phone scams go after the user. As I told a firm I was talking to this week, the attack point are the people in the room I was talking to. That's how I'm going to get in the network. If I'm an attacker, I'm coming in through them. And that person in the office who might be the managing partner of the firm that doesn't want to be bothered with this, he doesn't understand what he's worried about, it's not his issue, the IT guy takes care of it, that's a disaster waiting to happen because that's the guy I'm going after. I can trick him into doing something because he expects the IT people to get a hold of him and hold his hand and do everything. It turns out that's probably a bad situation, sets up social engineering really nicely, and also create data security and data theft recovery plans. That's part of what the tax professionals should be doing right, under these programs. Okay. We're going to also talk about identity protection pins. We've talked about those before. Remember, this is back to taxpayers. Uh, taxpayers verify their identity online. They can opt to get an IP pin. Now, the IP pin is a six-digit code that will be sent to them, right? You get it there. You can get it directly there on the IP pin site, log back in. My understanding is when the new tax season begins, you'll be able to get your new IP pin there. They also will mail them out time to time. And that pin will help ensure that nobody except the taxpayer can file the return. Now, as we've discussed before, the problem with the program is once you get in, you really can't get out. And if you can't get your PIN, you can't figure out the PIN, you fouled it up, you forgot your passwords, you can't prove the IRS your use, you can't get a replacement password easily, um, you may end up having to file by paper and it may take a long time to get processed. So that's also a key problem that we run into with these programs. We're also going to give some a day for businesses to watch out for tax-related scams and implement safeguards, right? In this case, small businesses with less than 100 employees, these scams are being aimed at them because we expect they don't have as many defenses and they're probably not holding training programs or doing specific, you know, basically pin testing to look for whether, you know, can something get through? You know, can we get through? Can't. You know, in a large organization, quite often, you know, the security people will send out test emails every so often just to see if employees fall for the trick. And if you fall for the trick, then, you know, uh, you failed and we're going to get more training to get you correctly. So what they say is for small businesses, you should learn about best security practices for your small business. Um, you know, they talk about the fact that, you know, sensitive information is not provided on transcripts. So they're going to, you know, they're going to basically block out or not provide things like full social security numbers, that kind of background. Uh, there is a foreign business theft, identity theft affidavit. If there is been a problem with your business and it's been, you know, you know, ID thefts taken place, you can file that with the IRS. Um, also be aware of scams, the W-2 scam that attempts to steal employee information. Uh, that was best known a couple of years ago when it happened to a major hard drive supplier. Uh, who somebody in payroll got a supposed call or an email that appeared to come from the CEO who said he needed that information right now. 
you don't turn down the CEO, so they sent it to the email address on a reply and attached it, and turned out that that was going outside the organization, was not sent to the CEO, and all those bad things. So make sure your people know about those things. Make sure they know what you won't ask for. That's going to be really important for your small business. And also check out the business section on the identity theft question, right? That's going to be fundamental issues. So we want to make sure everybody kind of gets up to speed on what they need to be doing for ID theft. The release also discusses some additional resources. They remind you to review publication 4557, Safeguarding Taxpayer Data. That's what you as a tax professional are responsible for. That's what you've told us you read when you got your P10 this year. We're also going to say review the Small Business Information Security, the Fundamentals by National Institute of Standard Technology, and they got pages for tax pros, right? And they're also going to have a YouTube uh, videos on security steps. Uh, you can be seeing easy steps to prevent your computer and phone. Security measures help prevent against tax-related identity theft. You can go and click them there. And employers can share security identity awareness for taxpayers with their employees, customers, and tax professionals can share that with the client. These are things people can do to improve their security so we don't have as many tax problems or ID theft problems regarding tax. Okay. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November the 21st, 2022. This will be the week of Thanksgiving. Since we have much this past week, I can't imagine a three-day week is going to give us a ton of stuff to do. So next week, if I don't have much in terms of developments, what I may end up doing is just reviewing some broader topic and use that as our week fill-in. So watch out, that may be coming. I'm, I'm th things have gotten so thin, I've begun to think about topics I maybe I just would like to talk about uh, in lieu of going over, you know, what will end up being something that really nothing much happened. If we have big development, I'll do it. But otherwise, we'll just take a look what's there. If you have any questions, though, about things that come up, you can email me, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. There, I can answer that email. I also monitor the forums for the Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society, Minnesota Society, uh, Illinois Society, and Washington Society, as well as take a look at the similar board. Now, those, those all use Connect as their sites. Uh, Idaho has their own special site I look in there. You can also follow me. I am on Twitter at Ed Zollers. I'm also on Mastodon now. That's interesting. We got into that one as a federated discussion area. And so at Ed Zollers at Mastodon.world is where you'd find me there. That requires a bit longer uh, thing. If you're on a Mastodon server, uh, you can follow me there. Keep eyes up and see what's going on. You got questions. You can post things as we go through there. Otherwise, we got another quiet week, and I realize that probably a lot of people be disappearing early this week to go on holidays. Uh, I don't need to travel this week, which I'm happy about. Uh, I do actually have a couple of broadcasts this week, uh, you know, essentially for not, not, none of them are public structures for state CPA societies, but they're out of state uh, call, calls I'm taking and doing for this week. Uh, Going to have a couple things coming up in the near future. Uh, mainly going to be in Arizona. Okay, Arizona and firms are my thing coming up, coming future. Uh, still have a few things going up though. A uh, couple of K2 webinars I think coming up uh, to discuss the brand new K2 forms. I think I got those coming up uh, for a couple of places. And I'm going to also have some stuff coming up in Arizona about past entity tax. That'll be fun. So those will be coming up. But otherwise, uh, hopefully, like I said, take care this week. I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving. 
have a good time with your family. If you're traveling th this week, I feel for you. I've had enough fun traveling without everybody being out there. So I figure th this week traveling ought to be really interesting. Uh, and I am glad I'm not participating in it because all my family's here in Arizona. So I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying nicely right here in Phoenix where it's nice, relatively warm, no snow, and no travel hassles. That, that's my key for this week. But hopefully you all get back and we will see you a week later. We'll talk about whatever happens or go over something general on the program for the week for current federal tax developments.